You know, this evening we're going to be opening up um, a time over the coming weeks that we're going to be um, considering perhaps some of the things of Jesus, um, the miraculous wonders that he performed, the healings that he performed, uh, ministered to others, the ways that he transformed people's lives, both in compassion and, to, and as a demonstration of who he was, is, uh, what he had come to do and to bring into being. While we're going to be considering all of these things, when we do so, first and foremost, we're considering Jesus. Uh, I would say to you with all of my heart, um, look to Jesus and don't stop looking. The Bible tells us that we're to look to Jesus who is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who sets all things in motion and he's the one who receives that wonderful motion to himself. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. We're to look to him. And do you know, he is everything. If he's the alpha and the omega, you tell me, where can you find anything that is not of Jesus, that is for your satisfaction and for your good? You can't. Jesus is everything. And I want to encourage you, make Jesus not just your Sunday God, but your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday God. Make Jesus your hope in all circumstances. Make Jesus the one that you turn to, not when things are just going well, but when things are going terribly. Or flip it, not just when things are going terribly, but also when things are going well. Make Jesus the one who is the first upon our lips. Make Jesus the one who receives all thanks and all praise for all things at all times because he is always worthy. And let Jesus receive you in your brokenness. Let Jesus receive you in your desperation. Let Jesus receive you in your failure. Let Jesus receive you when you're a sinner. Sometimes it feels like more than a saint. Although... Be assured that through Jesus, your default status is no longer that of sinner, but it is of saint. Let Jesus be your all in all. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And we become fully human, fully alive when we learn how to love him in return. Your hearts were made for him. And if the pursuit of your life is anything other than him, then you will be dissatisfied. You may even destroy yourself in the process. Certainly, if you make the pursuit of your life totally independent of Jesus, then ultimate destruction is the only end. But if you pursue Jesus, you will know life in all its fullness, life for today and life for all of your future. Seek Jesus. Seek Jesus. We're going to open up the scriptures this evening. And as we do so, we're going to find Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry. In fact, in Jesus' opinion, he would say it was before the beginning of his ministry. And he had a word or two with his mum about that. But there we find Jesus. We find Jesus in the ordinary things of life. We find Jesus in the extraordinary things of life. We find Jesus amongst family and friends. We find Jesus in times of partying. And Jesus in times of desperation. We find Jesus. But I'll tell you this evening, as much as we can open up the scriptures, we can talk about them, we can talk of Jesus, we can talk of what he did. Unless you for yourself seek Jesus, then me saying we find Jesus is totally redundant. Unless you seek Jesus for yourself, 
then you can't possibly hope to find him. Because I am no intermediary between you and Jesus Christ. There are no second-class Christians. God has no grandchildren, only children. And you for yourself must seek him with all of your heart. With all of your heart. Here is the wonder of it. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 29. From there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. This again is not a promise of God that comes with any footnotes or any caveats or any ifs or muts or baby, maybes. Maybe with babies, I don't know. But, uh, this promise of God is for anyone and everybody who will seek him. Don't discount yourself from this. Don't say, oh, I, I don't need to seek Jesus. Everything's going fine. Don't discount yourself. Don't discount yourself and say, and say, if only you knew about my background, if only you knew what I'd done, if only you knew where i come from, then you would know that God isn't interested in me. Don't discount yourself because God has not discounted you. He will not do so. The message of the cross speaks profoundly and powerfully that he has come for all. And there was a man crucified next to Jesus. And in defending Jesus, there's a good thing to do. He turns to him with the, the last best moment of his life, the only moment of faith perhaps that he'd ever had. And he said, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me, Jesus? And Jesus turned to him and in this beautiful moment of forgiveness and setting him free, he says, I tell you the truth, this day you will be with me in paradise. What had he done? What had he done to earn such a blessing, such a promise, such a possibility, such a truth from the very lips of the Savior who was dying for his sins? Nothing. He'd done nothing to earn it. It's very, very obvious to us, isn't it? That this man had done nothing to earn it, and yet he received everything from Jesus. We tie ourselves up in knots, don't we? And we sometimes think, oh, I'm doing pretty good. Maybe I am earning something. And then other days we'll say, I'm doing pretty bad. Maybe I'm not earning something. Uh, Either way, we're wrong. We couldn't possibly earn the goodness and the glory that God promises to us. And yet he gives it to us nonetheless. And he invites us, if we'll seek him, to know this truth that he couldn't possibly love us anymore. He's not going to love you more when you get all of your stuff together. He's not going to. He's not going to love you more when you say, ah, now I'm doing pretty well. Now I can give this a good shot. He loves you just as much today as he will then. And please, God, you know, things in your life may well come together. But he loves you just as much today. He couldn't possibly love you less. The ups and the downs of life. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you. Do you know what? The cross doesn't vary or change. It is high above everything. It is not a partial cross today or a better cross tomorrow. It is the fullness of the completed work of God for your salvation. And Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father because his work is complete. You cannot diminish the work of the cross. It is good at all times for all people. And your salvation is sure and certain if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Are you seeking him? This evening, 
We've just got one story really to talk about just for the next few moments. It's a fun story. It really is. It's, it's, the, it's this first miraculous story of Jesus as recorded by John in his gospel. And um, it's a pretty fun story. Uh, we're going to see it. It's going to open up a number of things to us. But firstly, what it opens up to us, and you know, fundamentally what it opens up to us is that Jesus is making a way for you to follow him. He's making a way for your life to be washed clean. He's making a way for you to enter into the fullness of life with him. The story is found in John chapter 2. And if you want to, you might want to go there for yourself. There are Bibles scattered about. In a bit, it's going to come up on the screen. But before I tell you that story, I'm going to tell you another interesting story. Not as profound, but a little bit interesting, just to open up our thinking. In March of 2004... I was going to say, where were you in 2004? I'm conscious. There might be one or two of you who actually, um, you weren't on this planet in 2004. Maybe a couple of littlies. Um, but there you go. Uh, most of us, we can, 2004. When you think, is it just me? Or when somebody says to you, do you remember 20 years ago? And you still think it was like the, the 80s. Does, is anybody else? You know, like 20 years ago, that was the 80s. And then suddenly you realize, no. Um, oh, goodness, time is flying on. March, that's got nothing to do with anything. March 2004. Dozens of rescuers were looking for 39 Boy Scouts and their leaders trapped by tons of snow. An avalanche in Logan Canyon, which is in the the U.S. state of Utah, had covered the scouts. And 64 mile an hour winds made rescue efforts extremely difficult. Ironically... The trapped scouts were sleeping comfortably throughout the entire ordeal. The group had carved snow and ice caves deep down there in the snow, bunkering in for the night. I'm not quite sure what badge you get for doing this. Some sort of absolutely awesome survivalist badge, I don't know. But there they were, all hunkered down. And then when the avalanche occurred around four o'clock in the morning, the sleepers inside had no idea that they were buried under six to eight feet of snow. The snow caves insulated the group from sound, wind, and all knowledge that they were in deep and dreadful trouble. The father of one of the scouts, Randy Mora, said, you're pretty cozy inside of them. You're completely oblivious to what's going on outside. Thankfully, though, two of the scout leaders were sleeping in a nearby caravan of some sort. They heard the storm the avalanche, and called in the emergency services. Uh, That probably made quite a bit of a noise, I imagine, said the county sheriff's spokesman. But if they would have all been in the caves, I I shudder to think how long it would be before we would even have heard about it. Instead, rescuers quickly found the the scout's location by jabbing probes into the snow. (laughs) I love that. I just imagine they jab one in and a scout went, oh! Um, I don't know what the kind of probes are. I don't know. They jabbed the probes into the snow. Waking them to the news that they had been rescued from a danger they knew nothing about. This story that we're going to read in the Bible, one of the most famous stories, involves a young couple who needed a rescue. And just like those scouts, they really had no idea that a rescue was needed. They were letting their hair down after their wedding, dancing, because that's what you do after a wedding. Even if you can't dance, you dance. And, uh, and there they were, having some fun. 
while Jesus was organizing a rescue party in their reception. John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. On the third day, good things happen on third days, don't they? Yeah, does anybody remember anything about this? Good things happen on third days. But on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also, I don't know how you imagine Mary. She always seems to be kind of pictures of this pious person who really has no personality beyond a two-dimensional moment in history. But she seems to enjoy wedding parties. So I think there was more going on. She's a pretty kind of lively lady, a bit of, you know, life and soul of the party. And, uh, and Jesus seems to be no different. Anyhow, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, that sounds really abrupt. And I know you ladies out there are thinking, that young lad needs to, you know, take it down a peg or two. Remind you, you are talking about Jesus here, you know, you know wind your neck in. But um, it, it is probably just the language that they would have used at the time. It's just culturally appropriate. It's not um, inappropriate. But he says to us something really interesting. He says, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, as all good mums do, totally ignoring their kids, do whatever he tells you. This is how it should be. It doesn't matter what the kids say, just crack on. Um, now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. More on that later. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Sometimes a wedding is more than a wedding. In John's gospel, I don't know whether you know, but it's a very finely crafted book of the Bible. And um, he, he, he hangs all of the story of Jesus around groups of seven kinds of events. And of the sevens, John has seven miraculous um, moments in the story of Jesus, which John calls signs. And just like signs by the side of the road, they're pointing as to what's happening and where you're going. And so John is really carefully curating. He's picking the events, the miraculous events of Jesus to show us what's really going on and to show us where we're going. Starting with this watery miracle right at the beginning, John is really clearly showing us something about how we get to be invited into something else. Invited even to be ultimately baptized as believers in Jesus. Now, firstly, let's recognize something. You know, there's a lot of liquid in the story. Uh, there's an obvious point. These jars, 
six of them, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's a lot of water, isn't it? Um, and I know initially they weren't full, uh, but they were going to fill them. This is a great deal of water. I don't know how many people were at the wedding. It would have had to be an absolutely vast party for them to need that much water for the Jewish rites of purification. Because actually, um, when they were to practice the ways of purification, they would only need just a teeny little bit on, on their hands. So why on earth would there be these six stone jars when, truth be told, for such a party, probably one would have sufficed to, to get the kind of, well, I was going to say to get the party started, but the, for the purification rites. Well, could it be that John here is pointing us to something quite important? Just as he has seven signs in his gospel, seven being a number in the Bible that speaks of completeness and perfection, here there are six jars and then comes Jesus. Because what is happening for us here in John's uh, retelling of the story and in this invitation into the miraculous way of God is that everything is not yet complete until Jesus comes. And if the Bible is teaching us that seven is the, 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 the sign and the symbol of perfection, of completeness, of everything coming into its fullness, then six just ain't going to cut it. It's more than is needed, but it's still yet not enough. How strange is that? And then Jesus comes into the setting and completes everything. And through the, the process of, of baptism for us as Christians, and we practice baptism, an outward sign that shows the inward work that God has done within our lives, we're perhaps a little bit familiar with the, the, the sense of, of what it is for water to have a symbolic meaning and a, and, and a, a sense of power within our, our faith. Just as nowadays when we baptize somebody, we don't baptize them so that their bodies might be clean. We ordinarily would say you might want to grab a shower beforehand, but uh, exactly was the same in those days. The water that was used for Jewish purification actually wasn't so that they could wash their hands before dinner. My lad and I, we go through a recurring battle these days, and, um, and it generally revolves around his, his desire or lack of it to wash his hands this is a thing that all children must go through at some point in their life, isn't it? That they just, they just basically disbelieve that the washing of hands is an important part of life. And, and no matter the fact that he's had many kind of nasty little bouts and bugs and such like, he still doesn't entirely believe me that having gone to the toilet, he needs to wash his hands. But you do. Jewish purification, it's not that. It's not that there's these six stone jars and in front of each one there's a little pump action something of Sanex or whatever so you can wash your hands and be clean. That's not what's happening at all. Actually, they would just use a tiny little bit of water because it was an outward sign of what they were saying was happening within. And this is a practice that stems from, from, from all the way through Jewish tradition, but we find it really pointed out to us in Psalm 24 and, and verse uh, four, where the Bible says, you know, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can be with God? You know, we talked about longing for him, wanting to be with him. But sometimes we, we ask ourselves, well, how can this be? Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only the person who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so Jewish worshippers for centuries, they would simply just put a little bit of water over their hands 
to say, actually, this is my heart's desire. I'm wanting to commune with my God. And this outward act of ceremonial washing is, please God, symbolic of a heart made pure that I might be with my God. John the Baptist, when he was to come just before the ministry of Jesus, he uh, brought this symbolism to the fore again, demanding that people should repent of their sin and be completely washed in the Jordan River. Again, it's not to cleanse your skin, but it's a sign and a symbol outwardly of being cleansed on the inside and then being able to be close to God. Baptism for them then and for us now, reminds us that sin is a problem for everybody. Sin is everywhere. And there's always a need to be cleansed from sin. We as believers, this side of the cross, we understand that Jesus Christ, he has saved us. He has saved us from the penalty for sin. If our faith is in Jesus Christ, we will not perish on the last day. But Jesus Christ is doing a work of making us holy. He's saving us um, from uh, the, the, the power of sin in our lives that actually we're no longer under the thumb of sin, somehow beholden just to get it wrong over and over again. Jesus is going to save us in the end of all things when he makes all things new. He will save us even from the very presence of sin and there will be no more of the wrongdoing and the evil and brokenness of this world. But in the day-to-day, we wrestle with this. We wrestle with the fact that sin is around us. The other side of the cross, these Jewish believers, whenever they would come to worship God, there they would be, and they were just a little bit of water on their hands. They came to share in their Sabbath meals, a little bit of water on their hands here at a wedding and at other events and and, and symbolic times of life, a little bit of water saying, this is our problem. And we're simply saying, God, would you accept us? Would you accept us? And into this story, this story of incompleteness, this story of the brokenness of the world, this story of the problem of sin, comes the presence of a saviour. We don't know a great deal about the wedding. It's incredible because of all of the things I've ever been involved in in my life, weddings have the most detail. Isn't that true? Everything, it has to be planned to within an inch, doesn't it? Every last little detail, it all has to be done um, to, you know, really, really well. I remember specifically, I may have mentioned this on numerous occasions because it involves cake, but I remember very specifically going out to Canada um, and, and going out to be with my then fiance, and uh, and and we would have the the time together out in Canada to do some of the work of preparing for our marriage, and 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 we arrived, and almost the very first thing that we did is we went to go and taste different types of cake, and then I knew that I'd made a very good decision in asking her to be my wife, uh, because there would be lots of cake involved, a uh, lot other good things as well, obviously, um, in marriage. But there's so much detail. So many things. But we don't know anything about this wedding. We don't know the names of the people. We don't know what happened at the wedding. We don't know any of the details of anything, really. Uh, Archaeologists would tell you that they've got an idea where the, the town of Cana was, but they don't entirely know even that. So we've got this unknown couple in an unknown place. 
and yet God himself comes to this place of incompleteness, this place of the struggling with sin, to people who are ordinary every day, just like you and me, and he brings grace and hope and a miracle that says that everything has changed. I think it's great that we don't know anything about these people because they could just be you and me, couldn't they? They could be you and me. I think if, if this was some sort of, uh, you know, incredibly kind of pomp and circumstance event with famous people, uh, we might think somehow that the grace of God is not for us. But because it's for ordinary people, because it's in an out-of-the-way place, because we don't know the details, we can say this could be us. It's Jesus coming to us just as truly as he came to that couple then. But here's the truth. It wasn't just that couple then who had a problem at their wedding feast. It wasn't even just the people who were celebrating with them who had the problem. Nobody realized perhaps that the wine had run out. They certainly didn't realize that God himself had come to walk amongst us. They absolutely wouldn't have realized that this was the beginning of a story that would lead that Jesus to a cross to die for their sins. The miracle that Jesus performed was was symbolic of what would happen in his life. Sin is everybody's problem. Everybody's problem. Here's the truth. Every last one of us is dealing with this terminal disease. Sin has come into our world and it has brought brokenness and death. We as a church this week, in a sense we're we're mourning, we're sorrowful because of the loss of Linda at the start of the week. And we are reminded and encouraged in our spirits that for her to be absent from her body, which was so terribly broken, is to be present with the Lord. What does the Bible remind us? That's far better far better and we're thankful for many things in this but when somebody who is near and dear to us dies it reminds us of this truth it reminds us that we are all going to die and because our world is broken because sin has been given free reign by humanity by us death is a part of life we all have this problem And it comes close, it comes near, it becomes final for some. But let's not fool ourselves. Sin is everybody's problem. And death is a part of everybody's life. And again, we must seek the Savior. Seek the Savior. Truth is, there was only one person in that crowd who had an inkling of who might bring the hope. Just Mary. She had an inkling of these things, an inkling born of an angelic visitation of nine months carrying a child who was in some senses ordinary but definitely extraordinary, of raising a boy who confounded expectations over and over again, who seemed wiser than his parents in so many ways, even though he was just a little tot. And she knew that he was the one who could make a difference. And so, asked to help. Jesus looks over to those stone jars and orders them filled and they fill them right to the top. Again, we remind ourselves 
that wouldn't be what you would expect to do with these ceremonial water jars. You know, just a couple of cups would do for a hundred people or more. With all of these water containers filled, there was already more than would be needed at that wedding party. This was enough for the town already, maybe more. And I want to remind you, if you're seeking Jesus, you're seeking a generous God. I go so far as to say he's an extravagant God. We sing a song of late that talks about his reckless love. And I know some people in some parts have wrestled with this and thinking that somehow recklessness is a negative trait. But actually, what we're seeing here in God is we're seeing somebody who is willing to give it all. Go to the farthest reaches. Not just do what is enough, but do more than what is enough. Because it's an expression of his nature. He wants to lavish his love upon us. He wants to overflow with kindness. He wants to be brimful and beyond with all the blessings that are to be found in him and in his kingdom. Jesus says, don't just give me a little bit. He says, fill it to the top. There's another great story, isn't there, of a little lad with a packed lunch, a couple of fishes and some bread buns, and he brings them, and Jesus blesses them. And do you know what? It's enough to feed 5,000 people. I don't know whether you ever thought about this, but if it was you or me, and we knew that we could do that kind of miraculous act, wouldn't you do just enough so that everybody had just enough? Oh, not Jesus. Jesus feeds everybody miraculously from a packed lunch and has 12 baskets of leftovers. What kind of God thinks, let's have 12 baskets of leftovers at the end? He's extravagant. He's generous. He loves to do more than is enough. And sometimes we have this idea of a God. We come seeking a God on our knees. And we kind of, you know, we're kind of just metaphorically whipping our backs as though we might impress him and saying to God oh please God would you please give me a little teeny little bit of something nothing maybe just if possible please no God lavishes he's generous he does more than you can ask or imagine this is his heart he wants to bless he wants to give he wants to overwhelm you he wants to overcome you he wants to give everything And Jesus turns water into wine. I love the fact that in this story, Jesus simply tells them to fill it with the water. It doesn't even seem like he kind of says anything or does anything after that. It's just simply do this simple act of faith and everything will happen. We overthink things, don't we? Don't we overthink things? You know, we're going to spend this little season as a church inviting the miraculous of God. And I know what I'm like. I don't know whether any of you are like this. I, you know, I'm going to say, let, let's pray about healing. Let's pray about the miraculous. And I can hear myself praying. And, and, and I'm going to be trying to explain to God how he should heal people. Because that's how my head works. And I know it's stupid. But I sometimes just want to do it anyway. Because I feel like, you know, if we have a bit of the detail, then somehow God's more likely to do something. Aren't I daft? You can say amen at that point. But you're daft too. Because you do it too. And you think through all of the ins and the outs of how God will bring his kingdom to bear in your circumstances. You think all of the ins and the outs of how God's going to heal you. 
All of the ins and the outs of how his miraculous is going to come. And you know, when we're done, it's no longer miraculous. It's just us doing stuff, isn't it? But God says, just fill it with water. And they do. And that's enough. And I don't understand it. And that's good. Because I shouldn't understand it. But I should revel in it. And I should be delighted in the extravagance of the inexplicable wonders of God. And so should you. This watery wonder opens up something absolutely remarkable. Why do we baptize people who place their trust in God in water? We talked about tattoos briefly this morning. I, I, you know, why, do, why do we not, when somebody becomes a Christian, give them some sort of tattoo on their arm or something? Why do we baptize people instead? There must be something going on here. Or why is it not like cattle and, and you get like a brand or something like that on your... No, maybe not. That's a nasty thought, isn't it? Why do we baptize um, Christians? And, you know, couldn't we use something other than water, perhaps? You know, you've probably never seen huge jars of water at a wedding. But it is integral to our faith. Integral to the thought of spiritual cleansing but symbolic of a lifetime commitment. A lifetime commitment. Jesus, he's opened up a new possibility here for us. And with his disciples, once upon a time, he took them to a town named Caesarea Philippi and he asked them, who who do people say that I am? And they go around and about and up and down. And finally, inspired by the Spirit of God, Simon Peter says, you're the Christ, the anointed one of God. You're the son of the living God, in fact. And Jesus showers blessings upon him for this insight given to him by God. Promises of the future. It's a, a strange and a wonderful place for this to happen because that town was a town of sin and of separation from God but it was also a town where the river Jordan began and the river Jordan became a a place of baptisms where Jesus was baptized believers would be baptized in Jesus this place of water and something that came out of it seemed a place of sinfulness and brokenness was redeemed by God to be uh, something of cleansing and of an invitation into life with Christ and a commitment to him. I don't know. I suspect many of us, most of us here this evening, have been baptized as the sign and the symbol of our faith. If you've not yet been baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ, then please do ask me at the close. And when we next baptize people, we'll baptize you. I'm sorry, it won't be in the River Jordan. It will be in just the tank we have here in the stage. But it will be warmer. Um, So that is good. Um, But baptism invites us into commitment to something of the seeking and the longing for God. And it always has done. And it always will do couple of little stories and then we'll close after the publication of the King James Bible in 1611 a small group of Christians adopted believers baptism as a symbolic mark of their faith this was new because they hadn't had access to the Bible for such a long time 
but suddenly able to read the Bible in English, they held fast to the baptism of believers despite persecution that included them being fined, whipped in public, beaten, and even stoned. You and I were baptized so easily, so easily that sometimes we don't even get around to it. But these folks, they were willing to undergo everything, to give everything so that they might be baptized for their faith. One last story. Margaret Burks, a retired missionary from Tanzania, told of a baptism she'd watched in East Africa. Some new believers followed that missionary into a river that had nearly dried up in the summer drought. The water was so shallow that the missionary had to scoop out a place with his hands in the deepest portion of the river. There, if the converts sat in the sand, there was just enough water to lower them below the water. The ceremony continued and Margaret watched from a distance. When the missionary baptized a boy in the shallow water, the child came up out of the ceremony shouting, I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive! When the missionary asked the boy what he was doing, he explained that when the missionary said people were buried with Christ in the waters of baptism, he thought that people were actually killed in the process. And those listening to the story chuckled at the child's misunderstanding until Margaret asked a haunting question. That child thought that baptism would kill him, and yet he was willing to go through the process. Would you have done the same? See, Jesus begins his ministry here with water. And it's water that speaks of the completeness of his presence. And it's water that speaks of the extravagance of his love. And it's water that turns into wine, which in turn speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ that was to be poured out for our sins. But water does speak to us also of a call. A call to commitment, a call to follow, a call to give our lives for the one who gave himself for us. It speaks to us of a death to self and a life to Christ. It speaks of a death to sin and a life to his service. It speaks to us that we might be a part of the completing work of Jesus Christ in this world. That we might be people who minister the very blood of Jesus Christ to those who are in desperate need. It speaks that we might, having been washed clean, be people who take the holiness and the reverence of the God whom we say we love to those around us who are lost and hopeless in their sin. Christians, do you want to just read these stories and think, oh, that's cute? Or do you want to see the kingdom of God coming in all its fullness? Do you want to see Jesus, the very king of the ages, the king of the world being enthroned in this world? Do you want to see it and say, yes, I want to be absolutely drenched in the water of Jesus Christ. The water that turns and turns things and turns me from my brokenness into wholeness and turns me from a place of half-heartedness into a place of wholehearted devotion. I know that people who saw this act of turning water into wine were moved in that moment. I imagine they were moved into the following of Jesus. Even his disciples started to believe that this wasn't an ordinary man. Are you moved? Are you changed? 
You transform, not by my words or even simply by the retelling of a story, but by the very presence of God because he is as present in his words now and present by his spirit as he was in that day. Are you moved by him? Are you committed to him? Would you, like that boy, be willing to be baptized even though you thought it might cost you everything? I watched a a TV program. And it followed the course of the River Nile. And they got to a place in Ethiopia, I think. Or it may have been Sudan. And it was Easter. I love Easter. Jesus is alive. And, and they all gathered around a pool that they had diverted from the river. And, and it's not our practice in our church, but they were all going to be baptized again. There's a part of me that wishes I could get baptized again because it was a lot of fun. It was really good. You all look miserable, so I imagine your baptisms were rubbish, but mine was great. And, uh, and there they all were, gathered around the edge of the pool. And, uh, and there was this wondrous mix in amongst them of reverence and joy. And there they were, and they'd been preparing themselves, and they came just quietly, silently to the edge of the pool. And then, do you know, it totally caught me by surprise, because they started leaping into the waters. And they were doing somersaults, and I thought, I missed a trick in my baptism, give me another go. Where's the diving board? Get me in there. And they were jumping in, and they were doing laps, and they were getting back out and jumping in again. Because there was so much fun and joy for them in diving into the things of God. We're going to be saying over these weeks, God, would you do it again? The miraculous, the wonders, the things of your kingdom, would you do them again? Would you do them again? Would you do them again? But I tell you, an extravagant God wants to come to extravagant people. I tell you, a generous God wants to come to generous people. I want to ask you this evening, who are you going to extend the invitation to? Because you know people who need to see Jesus Christ poured out into their lives, don't you? And who are you going to invite that they might know this, that we might come and we might pray for them and see God pour his love out upon their lives because that's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to do. Christians, don't just come to hear nice stories. Jesus is completing everything and he wants you to join in the fun. The Lord of all glory wants you to come with reverence and fear that your friends might come with anticipation and hope. Don't just come to listen to stories. Come alive. Come alive. Can we pray together?